Hey everybody, welcome to Sunday School, a new Bible study podcast presented by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my good friend and biblical scholar extraordinaire, Dr. Scott Powell, to talk about the Gospel of Mark. Maybe it's biblical scholar mediocre, but it, <laughs> either way. Scott, who, um, who are you and uh, why should people listen to you? Um, yeah, like you said, my name is Scott. I've uh, been teaching the scriptures in some capacity or another, or multiple capacities for Gosh, a couple decades now, I suppose. Wow. Um, I've been involved in the life of the church in all sorts of different ways, uh, working in dioceses. I was a focus missionary way back. I've taught at the Augustine Institute at the University of Colorado in Boulder at uh, St. John Vianney Seminary. Um, loved the scriptures, fell in love with them as an undergrad, wanted to find a way to teach for the rest of my life because I had teachers who changed my life. And I, I uh, had a church that, cha- that I kind of rediscovered in college that changed my life. I wanted to teach these things. I also um, run an apostolate with my wife called Camp Foytiwa, where we try to teach the Catholic faith um, through creation and through adventure experiences and experiential experiences, <laughs> you know, rock climbing and whitewater Experiential rock. experiences are yeah. my favorite kind of experiences. That was a poor, actually. my wife is going to kill me. For no, no, that no. Well, and so Scott, so you and I kind of got together and started talking about the idea of a Catholic Bible study podcast brought to you by Pillar Media, um, because we know that there are a lot of Catholics out there who want to go uh, deeper with the scripture, who know that the living God is found in the living word of God and uh, and want to encounter Christ in the scripture. But a lot of us didn't grow up reading scripture or don't really know. I mean, we can... Well, you did because you were a Protestant. I did because I, I yeah. grew up in a Protestant church. But, but, um, but for a lot of Catholics, you know, um, just jumping in can be a little bit intimidating. And um, sometimes jumping in can mean losing the perspective of somebody who has sort of studied not just the text, but the context around the text and the way the text came together and mm. what the fathers of the church have said about the text and all these things. And so you and I thought, why don't we try to do a five-episode series on the Gospel of Mark in which you, um, O wise and learned one, uh, read with us the Gospel of Mark and help us to unpack it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I um, The world is in the place that it is. The church is in the place that it is. But in a lot of ways, there is a, a sort of renaissance in the Catholic world of Part of it is just the sheer amount of materials that are out there and the access that people have to study materials and podcasts and, you know, web series. And certainly when I was kind of rediscovering my faith, um, you know, late 90s, I suppose, even early 2000s, the reputation. And I, I hesitate because I think the reputation might be slightly changing, but the reputation of Catholics was always Catholics don't know the Bible. Right. You know, sometimes we know some of the stories, but the, as the old joke goes, we don't know the address. Right. We, we know we've heard the prodigal son. We've heard some of these narratives, but you can never, I can never tell you where it was. Oh, I've never heard that before. That's, Have you not? No, that's funny. Yeah, I forget who I'm stealing it from. It's okay. Curtis uh, Martin or Scott Hahn. Or well, just, it, now it's Polycarp. yours. It's a good one. But, um, I mean, I think, I, I, I taught for a number of years at a place called the Catholic Biblical School, which is attached to our local seminary here in Denver. And the the mission of the Catholic Biblical School, and it was started years ago, kind of as a fruit of, uh, of Vatican II, that said, we want to give people access to the scriptures. We want to destroy this reputation that Catholics don't know what to do with the Bible, that it's this kind of off-limits thing. And, you know, I even remember seeing my my parents, my grandparents' Bible in the nice spot on the bookshelf in the house, and I, I was afraid to read it. I didn't know what to do with it. But once I really began to study Scripture, and especially once I began to teach Catholics Scripture, I mean, Catholics, maybe more than any other Christian population, are more equipped for, if you've been going to Mass for any long period of time, we know the narratives. We have salvation history. Right. We just don't know how to put the pieces together right. necessarily. right. I think that's really true, and I, I think that's why I'm, I'm really glad to be able to go through a whole book of the Gospels together yeah. and hopefully understand it better. Um, for listeners at home, here's the way this show is going to work. Um, each week, we're going to talk through a couple of chapters of the Gospel of Mark. This is going to be a five-part series in which we talk through the Gospel of Mark piece by piece. Absolutely. 
How do we start? Well, part of the reason I go back to that, um, my time at the biblical school with this this uh, desire that the church had in a lot of ways to make the scriptures, I don't even want to say it, to make the scriptures more accessible, but it was almost a feeling of wanting to give Catholics permission to go into the scriptures because they sometimes, I think culturally for a lot of folks, they for, seem sort of off limits and that's yeah. father's jurisdiction. I, I, I don't even know what to do. Or even for me, sometimes I just think I want a richer read. Like um, Absolutely. if I, if I read a chapter of, of a gospel, okay, I, I get what I'm getting, but mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of cultural illusions are going right by me right. or a lot of metaphors are going right by me or whatever. And then I know that because if I read a book like Ratzinger's kind of Jesus of Nazareth, I'm like, wow, this guy is reading a lot more than right. than I. So right. so really, you can be our our rat singer. Well, we and th- there's a, there's a fine line here, and I want to be careful about something. The um, uh, we were never meant, and this is I, I I certainly have a Protestant background as well, and I'm grateful for it. It taught me to know and love Jesus Christ in a lot of ways. But there is a false idea I think that exists in Christianity that we can just drop a Bible in someone's lap, and as long as we get the Word of God into their hands then their lives will be changed. And of course, the scriptures have the power to change people's lives on their own. But they were never meant to be given in a vac- in, in a void, I suppose, right? They were meant to be handed down with a tradition, with a body of knowledge, with and, and in a context, in the most proper context of the scriptures, both the Old Testament and New Testament, was in the liturgy. It was true in the Jewish world before Christianity. It's true in Christianity. They were meant to exist in the context of the liturgy. And to the degree that we then study them on our own, which we should... It's meant to be something that flows out of our life in the church and out of the life in the ministry, or our, our life uh, of the liturgy. Because all of the scriptures of the New Testament, at least, came together as a canon of scripture because they were things which were read liturgically in the life of the early church. Yeah, it was one of the criteria for determining, okay, which books are in, which books are out. Okay, yeah. They all had to be tied to an apostle. They all had to be... They, they had to be Catholic or universal in their in their scope of what they were talking about. They couldn't just be, you know, it, it only applies to this community and not these others. They had yeah. to be universal. And they had to have been being read and used by a large number of churches in a diverse, um, a diverse geography and cultural settings that people were actually using these liturgically. See, Scott, this is what I like about the notion of the, of the, the Eucharist, the Mass being the source and summit of our faith, is that reading Scripture outside of Mass both is like to help us enter more deeply into the Mass when we're participating in it, and then um, to unpack, even to read the Scripture again, is yes. to sort of unpack it in light of the graces and experience that we have reading it liturgically. So this yes. feels like kind of um, a, an application of that notion of the Mass being the source and summit of, of our faith. Absolutely. And even if you cool. look at the Mass, I mean, when we when we begin Mass, we all stand up. When I was a kid, I thought when we stood up in the Mass, we were standing up because Father came in. I'm like, oh, there's Father. I better yeah, stand yeah. up. Ding, ding. We stand up in reverence of the Scriptures. The oh, Word of really? God is being processed in. Oh, and it will be placed on the altar and it will be reverenced because the two things that are placed and reverenced on the altar are the word of God made written and the word of God made flesh. Yeah. And they're meant to be held up in that way as these uh, kind of two pillars of the liturgical life. And so again, to not, so, so the, part of the reason I think that's important and the caution I wanted to give earlier, and I, I love reading commentaries on scripture and I love diving into the original languages and cultural circumstances and historical, political, sociological things going on in the life of the Gospels and in the church or in the the, the scriptures. But I think sometimes, and I'm sure I'm guilty of this, I I never want to give the impression that, well, if you don't know Greek, you're never really going to be able to understand the scriptures. Or if you don't know all of these commentaries, or if you haven't read, you know, all three volumes of Ratzinger's Jesus of Nazareth, you know, you're you're, you're hosed. Um, There's a sense in which, and this is where in a lot of ways, 
we as a church have dropped the ball in yeah. actually conveying these things to the masses. So if you if you go back, you, talk, you mentioned the fathers. If you go back to some of the great writings of the fathers on scriptures, they don't have commentary series on scriptures. They don't have podcasts. They were all homilies. Right. All of Chrysostom's best stuff on the scriptures were all his homilies. And Polycarp and Augustine... Which meant that all the stuff that they were unpacking was being unpacked in a homily in the liturgy yeah. for everybody, not for biblical scholars. Yeah. And that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind, I think. So we're going to be talking about Mark, which I love. Mark, I probably say this with all of them, but, but I, I think Mark is my favorite gospel for a number of reasons. Partially... Uh, because Mark sometimes in biblical scholarship gets the short end of the stick. It's it's the shortest. Um, it was also historically sort of seen as sort of thrown together, haphazard, clumsy okay. by some scholars. I but disagree Mark is with the that. earliest too, right? Well, so that's I, I bring that up because that's a, a real debate that exists. I don't think that's true. Okay, I'm not really going to hang my hat on it. I don't I'm think so either. And from now on, anyone who says it, I'm going to be like, you have no idea. Well, the the oldest traditions of the church all say that Matthew was the first. Okay, the reasons they say this that we have. Well, there's a lot of things I want to say right now, so I'm going to try to put well, taking one piece at a time. Book. It's first in the book, but it's this is a chicken or the egg question. Is it first because it was written first, or is oh, it really? First that's for a other genuine reasons? part of the consideration. Is I the, think I'm going to suggest a consideration huh. regarding that okay. because I think there is a pedagogy in the arrangement of the Gospels. Oh. So, are they arranged pedagogically this way, or does the pedagogy pedagogy come out of the arrangement? Huh. So, more on that in just a second, but. Um, it was believed traditionally that Matthew was the first, not just because it shows up first, but because we have more copies that we've found archaeologically in more diverse places in the world than all of the other Gospels put together, which means that the early church made a point of copying Matthew and giving it out to as many people in as many churches and as many geographic locations as humanly possible. Wow. And we have more of them with older dating than any of the others. Wow. Now, we don't have the original one. We don't actually have the written word of Matthew, sure. which is a bummer. But the ones that we have date back really far. So and again, Mark doesn't go back as far. Um, I, I'm actually not sure. Okay. But we have far less of Mark. We okay. have fewer of Marks. And, and it, that's not really a which one came first question. It's sure. a purpose question. So the purpose of that was that Matthew was always seen as being the first catechism of the mm -hmm. church, the catechetical gospel. So there is this question that's a real question of why does the church have four Four different versions of the same story, right? Right. Three of which are actually really, really close to each other. Mark, yeah. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic from the, the Latin sun and optic to see together. Um, and then John is kind of doing his own thing. John sort of assumes, I think, that you know the other three, and he's giving oh, you a totally okay. different point of view. Oh, okay. The bird's eye view, as the fathers like to, they called him the eagle. Okay, right. Um, but you can learn a lot, at least with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about what those gospel writers want you to get. Because any, any I mean, you're a journalist. Any story that happens, you can get, you know, a, a report from X number of people. Right. And you're going to get that many different accounts of what happened. They're not all going to be, I mean, somebody might have facts wrong, but they're not right. all going to be conflictual. Right. They're just going to be, oh, well, that stuck out for me about right. this event. So I'm going to talk about that thing first because it was the most important for me. Right. It doesn't mean it's wrong compared to somebody else's account. Yeah. It's just their mind is, is kind of highlighting certain things over other things. But is that a problem for a biblical inerrancy oh, where yeah. there seems to be a genuine you know, conflict on details or something like that? Yes, it, it is a problem. I think there are, I think most of those problems, I'm, I'm saying most just because I'm sure somebody's going to throw something at me that I don't know the answer sure. to. 
I've never seen one that doesn't uh, that there isn't some sort of reasonable explanation for the discrepancy okay. therein. Okay. Again, there could be something that somebody throws that I just don't have an answer for. Sure. Of course. But does our but, does our sort of sense of biblical inspiration mean that each of the details in each of the synoptic gospels has to be right? Or do we have to reconcile them, or is that not how we understand? Y- yes, it does. I mean, the simple answer is yes. Okay. But what the church teaches about inerrancy is that whatever the sacred author is trying to convey, mm-hmm. that's what it says. Right. Which is different than how do I read it, you know, in, in this particular cultural, in Colorado and Denver and in this particular year, you know. Sure. That's not what it means. It's what is the author trying to get at? Are they using, you know, slang? Are they using different kind of language sure. or dialect or, you know, turns of phrase that we use that would have been used? At the time? Those, are, those are different matters than, you know, which night did the... Passover, have right. the Last Supper. That's a big question. But right. I even think that one's ironed out. But but the key to it, and, and I think we take this from Augustine, you can come at the scriptures from a skeptical point of view and saying, okay, I'm going to find the holes. This doesn't seem to add up. Or we can come at it from the point of view of, I, I believe what the church believes, which is these things are without error. Mm-hmm. This sure looks like an error. So I wonder what it is that I'm not seeing. Uh, I wonder what aspect I don't get. Yeah. Maybe there's something that Maybe there's an error in translation or something that I'm just missing in my, you know, in my understanding of it. This is what Augustine said. He's like, sure. there's, I should come in it from the point of view of maybe there's something I don't know yet. Sure. Rather than, you know, the, the more commonly academic approach of let's tear it down. Yeah. Again, I'm not trying to write it off or, or right. sort of push these things aside, but I think there's reasonable ways of looking at these things. Okay. Cool. So that being said, um, we can learn a lot about what the gospel writers want us to take, what, what they want to highlight based on the first public act that they show Jesus doing, which uh-huh. is a fun little trick. Have you no. heard this before? No. Mark is fun because it has almost no on-ramp. It just sort of throws you right. in the middle of everything. Right. But the others have a bit of an on-ramp. So Matthew starts with the long genealogy, right. and then you get some stories of the birth narratives. Luke gives you you know, the, the, the accounts of Zechariah and Elizabeth right. and then the birth stories. And John has his long, beautiful prologue before you really get into the action. But the first big public act Jesus does in each of the gospels tells you a lot, I think, about what those gospel writers want you to sort of take away. So in Matthew, the first real, so after, you know, the the, um, genealogy and the birth story and the baptism and then the temptation in the wilderness, Uh the first thing you really see Jesus doing publicly in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh And that's significant because Matthew then becomes the teaching gospel. It has more of the content of Jesus' teaching than any of the other gospels. it. It tells you the content, which is why whether or not it was written first, which honestly, I don't care that much, yeah. but the church puts it first because it's pedagogically important uh-huh. that you need to know the what of the gospel first. You need uh-huh. to know what Jesus said and taught, who he was. So we need the content, which is why I think it's the most copied, the most widespread, uh-huh. shows up in the most places because that's where you, that's the starting point. That's catechesis, one yeah. one. So that's Matthew. Mark, the, you know the first thing that Jesus does in Mark publicly? He's baptized. I'm like not considering that a big public thing. Oh, okay. I mean, you could maybe make I mean, that argument, but he does that in Matthew too. I love that your first question, I got it wrong. I know, you told he, me. Um, he, heals, he heals a person with a demon? Yeah, it's an exorcism. There's the, the first like couple chapters, because I did the reading. a lot of exorcisms. It's like healing, 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 and yeah. a lot of them seem to have a spiritual component. Exactly. But the first thing he does is an exorcism, which, what does that teach us? Well, one of the things it tells us is that Mark is going to be a little bit more action-packed. Mark tells you almost none of the content of Jesus' teaching. There's a couple of times where he gives you longish discourses, but most of the time it's as Jesus was speaking, this thing happened. Or while Jesus was teaching, a demoniac came up. Okay. But it's always, he doesn't really ever give you the content. He just, which makes me wonder if he sort of assumes that you've already got that. 
Uh-huh. I, I, again, we're not sure. Um, or or wants to convey by the signs of Jesus, like the Lord's divinity or something like that, that the Lord isn't just a teacher, but is... It's yeah. A lot of it is the authority piece. He wants to show that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. And not that Matthew is showing just that. Right. But he's he's step two. So Mark is the discipleship gospel. It's the now get up and do something about it because the world is in crisis gospel. Okay. And there is demons and there are people who are sick and there is a semblance or a seemingness that the evil one is in control of things. And Jesus has set out to make that right. Mm-hmm. It's also where you get more of discipleship language than the others. It's where you see Jesus calling these disciples. You saw that in those first two chapters, right? All of the various callings of, of the disciples, but not just the callings. In Mark's gospel, when they're called, they come immediately. Okay. The, the word immediately. So some of our some of the Bible translations um, smooth this out at the, you know, because somebody, some well-intentioned translator was was trying to do a good job. But the word immediately happens, I think, 41 times in the gospel. Wow. Because I think Mark wants to give you a sense of urgency. Mm. Like there's crisis. There's a fight to be fought. Yeah. Get off, get off the couch and actually do something. It's yeah. the do something gospel. Right? Oh, okay. And then you get to Luke. What's the first thing in Luke? Well, the first thing in Luke, this, is, this one's a little trickier. It's when Jesus gives that sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth. Right. Uh-huh. And it's not the fact that he gives a, um, a sermon. It's the fact that he talks about what's called the Jubilee year, uh-huh. which is the year of forgiveness. Oh, the year and he of says mercy, it's come fulfilled. He says today this exactly. scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Which is the Jubilee being fulfilled, uh-huh. which is a year of release. And so the idea is Luke has more about the concept of mercy than the okay. other ones do. More about release, people being freed of debt. Okay. Those stories, all the prodigal son, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin, those all show up in Mark's, er, I'm sorry, in Luke's gospel. You also get more of Mary in Luke's gospel. Okay. And so pedagogically, again, regardless of which one was actually written first, I think the reason that they show up the way that they show up, and again, chicken or the egg, is because of the way that they show up in the liturgy. And mm-hmm. and this came later. We, we got our liturgical cycle that we use what it was like in the in the 90, 80s or 90s. It was relatively recent that we had cycle year A, B, and C. Yeah, you know that's a sort about? of post conciliar. Uh, yeah, change. maybe it was yeah. 60s. It was, it was but it was probably around late-ish. the 1970 Roman Missal. I think that it's yeah. something like it was post Vatican II. Yeah, but it's pulling on something that's really important. And the thinking that the church used in that was that okay, well, in year A, we get all the gospel readings coming primarily from Matthew. Uh-huh. Why? Because you start with catechesis. You start uh-huh. with the what? Who is Jesus? What does he say? What What does he have to teach us? Uh-huh. Then in your B, we move on to, okay, now do something about it. Now uh-huh. it's the action. You have to get up and you have to respond to the teaching and yeah. respond to Jesus. Which brings us to your C, which is, okay, well, you've probably blown it and fallen flat on your face. So now you need the mercy gospel to pick oh. you up and brush you off. And your mom is there and she's going to pat you on the back and tell you you're okay. And then you move back to your A, where you relearn. Then your B, we're rechallenged. Then we refall. We need to be re-reminded of the mercy. And this becomes the life of the church. It's a brilliant liturgical cycle that the church yeah. has actually given us. And so we're this study that we're doing of the Gospel of Mark is yeah. really sort of, hopefully will catalyze us towards more of the do something. Yeah, I, yeah. I think so. Okay. That's the idea, at least. And it's, it's also, again, I know it doesn't show up first, but... Especially for, you know, people who have some familiarity with the faith or maybe have been practicing their faith. It's a great starting point. A couple things I want to say by introductory stuff about the gospel itself, because I really do love the gospel of Mark for a lot of reasons. I like the action-packedness of it. I had a teacher who called it the Hollywood gospel. If there were car chases in the Bible, it would be... Cool. Mark, there's not, but um, there's almost a donkey chase, but that's a different <laughs> shows up later. 
So again, I, I mentioned, I think before that scholars have sort of historically given Mark a hard time. One of the things that I, so I, I'm not really hanging my hat one way or the other if Matthew or Mark was written first. I know that I, I lean toward the traditional understanding that maybe it was Matthew, but again, I'm not, that doesn't ruin my faith in any way. There was a school of thought, and this isn't necessarily predominant, but it exists and it bugs me. And this came about kind of post-Protestant Reformation around the time of the French Revolution, maybe just after that, that Mark really had to have been first because it's the shortest and the seemingly simplest. And as things go, we know, of course, that things always move from simple to complex. Mm -hmm. And I think there really was a kind of anti-Catholic ethos happening in Germany and Europe at the time that said, well... Matthew's gospel has a lot about hierarchy and Peter and keys and structure and bureaucracy. And that could, surely that doesn't come until later. Oh, because in I the see. early church, it was just Jesus and his buddies gathered sure. around doing their thing. And then it gets complicated. So and then kind the church... of an idea like, okay, Mark is the Godspell gospel. And then you guys kind of make it all. <laughs> kind of. And again, it's I, I don't even know if it's the prevailing mindset now, but it exists. And I see it floating under the surface as far as the school of thought of Mark and primacy comes out of that. Oh, interesting. Which raises my, again, if it's if it's first, that's fine. But I don't like that logic. Because what we find is there, there's reasons that Mark is the way that it is. It's not, and scholars critique it sometimes for being, it seems to be clumsy. It seems like he's kind of mixing things up here and there. It seems like it's got a strange order. It se- yeah, it seems haphazard, which it's not. Okay. And I want to, um, in at least this first chapter or two, kind of demonstrate a couple of the places where it's not. But what we need to know about Mark, the reason that it is the way that it is, yes, it's the discipleship gospel. Yes, it's the action gospel. But the question is why? So Matthew's gospel, we believe, was primarily written to a Jewish audience. And it's clearly written to a Jewish audience because he is very explicit about, well, this happened to fulfill this thing in the Old Testament. And you know this tradition or this piece of the liturgy or this thing in the temple, all is fulfilled by this thing. So Matthew's very explicit about that stuff. Mark does that too, but it's all a little more under the surface. So Mark, um, well, you mentioned this earlier, all of the Gospels, certainly, part of the criteria for the Gospels making it in was that you mentioned that they had to be being read in the liturgy. But one of the other criteria is they all had to be apostolic. Mm -hmm. So they all had to be tied to one of the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. Mark is actually not. Well, that's not true. But seemingly it's not. Mark wasn't one of the 12 apostles. Okay. He's a disciple. He shows up, uh, shows up in Acts of the Apostles and I think 1 Timothy. Traveling with Paul. No, you're close though. Okay. Traveling with... Another guy. Another guy. Who's the other one? Barnabas. No, come on. Silas. He, he has a fight with Barnabas, or he's part of a fight with Timothy. Barnabas. Timothy. No, come on. I'm sorry. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you said Paul, and I assumed the next one would be Peter. Oh, Peter. So I was just going in the Pauline no, tree, no, as you right. could tell. Okay. Well, but you he travel, Mark travels. Apostles. Mark travels with Peter, Scott, and I'm surprised you didn't know that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I get all excited, and then I give, <laughs> I'm condescending. Anyway. Um, no, so it's believed, and this is actually, uh, there, there's... Lots of writings from the fathers that lend credence to this. To the idea that the author of the Gospel of Mark was a companion of St. Peter who traveled with St. Peter. But it's not even that. It's that Mark is actually Peter's scribe. Oh. He is literally writing. So some of the fathers consider Mark the Gospel of Peter. Wow. But it's being written by the hand of Mark, probably because Peter's probably in a prison cell in Rome awaiting his death. As Mark is writing down his testimony, Mark wow. is there because he is his disciple and he's his companion. But so this actually, and if you if you actually so compa- is it that Mark is kind of telling the story that Peter told him, or that Mark is is that, is that the idea, or that Mark is sort of dictating what Peter is? That's the question, and I okay. lean to well, the fathers lean toward him being Peter is dictating it to Mark. Okay, and Mark is taking it down, which I think, and you have to wonder, maybe that's well, it makes a lot of sense that that would lend itself to the short the brevity. 
Oh, the wow. not haphazardness, but the urgency of it. Like, yeah. if you're there, you're like, this guy's gonna die. I know my life is coming to an Peter end. Peter so was I gotta get this down. Potentially to be executed. Yes, here. and I do believe that it was written just before Peter's uh, execution, which I think was 67, wow, 80 or something like that. Yeah, and so I think he was rushing to get down every word of this testimony before the inevitable was about to happen. Uh-huh. It's also being written. We believe that the recipients were the church in Rome, of whom Peter was head. Uh And so for that reason, one of the interesting things about it is that Mark is a lot harder on Peter than like Matthew, for example, is. And it's Mark that really portrays Peter as a bonehead and doing all sorts of stupid things, which if it's Peter's testimony, there's a little more freedom of self-effacement. Exactly, which I kind of love. Regret, lament, those kinds of things. And just a little more honesty that if you're Matthew, you might not want to talk about the pontiff that way. Right, you might be sort of trying to shade it a little bit or venerate him or something like that. Yeah, but Peter pulls no punches with himself. Wow. And then, you know, again, it's written to this particular community. And so you see it's really Mark is the gospel where the disciples are boneheads. And it's the background cast that come, they rise to the surface. It's these outsiders or these women who are shunned by society or all sorts of people that you wouldn't expect that become the heroes of the book, which sounds very Peter to me. It's, 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 it seems like something Peter might do. This is so cool. Which, again, that, that changes the way that we read the book a little bit. Yeah. It also adds, so there's the, the where it's coming from, which is Peter in this situation. But it also, we got to consider where it's going. So if it's going to the community in Rome... And if the theory is right that it's somewhere around the ballpark of 67, I think it's got to be before 70 because it's in 70 that the temple was destroyed and the whole Jewish world is flipped upside down, which there's no mention of. So I think there's reason to believe it didn't if happen. If it happened before that, there You would think some, that there would okay, be some, right. some allusion to it. Um, but that means that that place or is happened this, after that, rather. If it happened it, after exactly that. Exactly right, that he would have mentioned it, yeah. But what that means is that the church in Rome is facing big time crisis because now they're either smack in the middle or right on the peripheries of the Neronian persecution. So there was an emperor named Nero who launched one of the, the bloodiest persecutions of Christians that the church had ever seen, which means, so yeah, Peter's in prison about to be killed, but he's also writing to a community that honestly has no time for a retelling of the Sermon on the Mount. They sure. need what they need. They need the call to discipleship. They need to be reminded that they're not following the wrong guy because they're primarily not Jewish. Uh-huh. They're Gentile converts. They're converts from from things other than Judaism. So they don't have, they're not as steeped in the Old Testament background yeah. in the Jewish liturgical life. They're following Jesus. And if you're coming from a pagan background and you're looking down the 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 barrel, the whatever a sword the would have. The tip of a spear. The or tip of a spear. Yeah. You got to be wondering, man, did I choose the wrong Messiah? Like, did I follow the wrong and guy? And so you said this, the, the Gospel of Mark emphasizes the power of the Lord. And that's authority. As a, the authority yeah. of the Lord. And that's a reminder this is the person that we're following. Yes. Yeah. And you also see a lot of stories of Jesus in conflict. Uh-huh. And he's in conflict and he comes out the other side in a certain sense. So if you're in the middle of a persecution, mm-hmm. you don't know what's on the other end of this. Uh-huh. You're going to want to hear a story of, I mean, you're, you're reading stories about Jesus. Con- he's in conflict with demons. He's in conflict with nature. He's in conflict with religious leaders. He's in conflict, you know, with family members at times. He's in conflict with everything. But he is constantly shown to have this authority that is able to to um, rise above all those things. So, again, this is good news if you feel like you're in the middle of this. And you're also coming from a world and a culture in which the most powerful people follow the most powerful gods. Right. And Rome is Rome because their gods are powerful. And the Greeks were the Greek Empire because their gods were better than everybody else's. And now all of a sudden you're told about this god who sacrificed, who emptied himself, who was killed on a cross and one of the most horrific and humiliating ways possible. And you've got to be thinking to yourself, man, 
is this right? Like, is sure. this true? Should yeah. I be on this road or should I just throw in the towel and follow somebody else? And so I think Mark is desperately trying to make the case of that world of persecution making sense. The world of suffering making sense. We're yeah. not necessarily being persecuted, but we suffer, right? Maybe mm-hmm. we are being persecuted, but it's meant to make sense out of suffering and to remind us it's not to wipe suffering out of the picture. It's to remind us, okay, suffering has a place in the plan of God and here's what he does with it. And even that there's a victory that comes after it. it seems. Well, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's all, but yeah, and more on that in a second, but that's, I think that's the big picture. The uh, last thing I want to say, just kind of by introductory is uh, with the Peter thing. Um, Peter gives a speech in Acts chapter 10 mm-hmm. That if you look at the structure kind of on a macro level, it follows almost the exact same trajectory of the whole gospel of Mark, which makes you think like, oh, this is totally Peter's kerygma. Like Uh this is his pedagogical teaching, Wow, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. Well, how was that for an introduction? Now that we have learned a little bit more about Scott and the gospel of Mark, head over to the second part of this episode to learn all about Mark chapters one and two. I'll see you there.